right, hey, what's up, Traders Point family? Good to see everybody today. Want to uh, welcome those of you gathering across all of our physical locations and those of you joining us online. We're really glad to have you today. And if you have a Bible or a device with the Bible on it, uh, go ahead and meet me in Romans 7. That's where we're going to be today. And uh, I want to start off this way. Um, about to two times a year, I get together with a group of leaders from various places all over the country uh, in what we call a cohort. And we get together um, in the spring and in the fall. We spend a, about a day and a half together. And part of that time is we invite uh, what I would call a sage to join us. A sage is somebody who's older and wiser and more experienced than any of us. And we sit down uh, usually around some sort of a fire in somebody's backyard and lots of good food is involved. And we just um, pick their brains and pepper them with questions. And they just kind of download all kinds of wisdom and knowledge and encouragement into our lives over the course of this day or so. And it's always such a rich experience. And uh, back in the spring, uh, we did this. We were gathered at a house in Southern California and we invited a retired pastor to come and spend the day with us. And this is a guy that has served faithfully over decades. And he's, what I would say, like he's finished well. Like he retired, there was no scandal. There was like none of that stuff. It's not perfect, but he finished well. And in fact, um, we have a tendency to hear a lot about the people, the leaders that don't finish well, but we don't nearly hear enough about the ones who do, in my opinion. And this is one of those guys. And so we're just sitting around and we're just drinking from a fire hose as he's just kind of sharing all kinds of nuggets of wisdom with us. And I'm uh, filling up a journal full of all the things that he's saying. And at one point he starts talking about preaching, which like really interests me because like I, like I do this so much. And this is what he wrote, or this is what he said, and I wrote it in my journal. He said, exegeting scripture is one thing. Now the word exegete means to explain or to interpret or to expound. So he goes, um, exegeting scripture is one thing. Exegeting you as the communicator, well, that's difficult. And then he said this, he goes, you really haven't preached. Like the sermon really hasn't come to life until you have helped your people see where you are in the message. Now what he's saying is, is that preaching isn't simply um, reading the scripture or explaining the scripture or um, even applying or illustrating the scripture. It's not even just giving an outline. He said the scripture comes to life and connects when your people can see how God is working in your life through the message. So it's like not about me, like I never want to get up here and make myself the hero of every story. I would never want you to think that I've got it all figured out or that I have all of the information. But what I do want to do, even if it's just at one point in the message, is pull back the curtain and say, here's how God is working on me through this passage we are working through. And here's the objections that I have. And here's the questions that I face and the roadblocks I found. And, and I'm a work in progress as well, is the realization that no matter who is up on this platform teaching and preaching, we are not up here because we've got it all figured out or because we no longer struggle or because we have all the answers. In fact, it's quite the opposite. One of my favorite definitions of preaching is I'm just one hungry beggar telling others where I found food. Now, some of you might be like, okay, Aaron, uh, nice story. Why are you telling us all this? Because I don't ever anticipate preaching a message. The reason why I'm telling you this is because as we come to chapter seven in our study of Romans, is this is exactly what Paul is doing. Paul is exegeting himself. 
if you've been here for this series that we've been walking through now for, I don't even know what week we're in, uh, Paul has been um, unpacking the gospel message. In fact, he has been, uh, can I say it this way? Disrupting our lives with reality. He is like helping us understand what the gospel message is. And if you didn't know any better, like if you knew nothing about Paul, you'd be like, man, this guy's got it all figured out. Like he's just got all the answers and he's eloquently like unpacking the gospel message in the first five chapters. But last week in chapter six and this week in chapter seven, this is Paul pulling back the curtain and going, hey, here's where I struggle too. Like I am in just as much need of recalibration as anyone else. And so let me put my life under the spotlight and under the microscope to kind of show you this own internal battle that I've got going on. In fact, um, uh, Romans 6 through 8 is Paul at his most vulnerable in the letter, which is why it is so encouraging. Now, last week, if you were here, you might remember me telling you that the first five chapters of Romans is Paul explaining to us what God does for us through Jesus. Chapter six through eight is Paul explaining to us now what God desires to do in us through Jesus. And in chapter seven, we're gonna walk through the whole chapter today. It's 25 verses. Uh, it's a really a continuation of what he started last week in chapter six. And if you were here, let me just kind of jog your memory. We talked about um, the challenge of personal and spiritual growth. Meaning like, well, you know, why is it that once I give my life to Jesus, like, why is it, like, once I understand the gospel message, why is personal and spiritual growth so difficult? Like, I wish it was like, uh, you know, spiritual growth was like up and to the right, but it's not. It's a series of mountaintops and valleys. Like, it's a series of three steps forward, two and a half steps back. It's um, victories as well as defeats and setbacks. And so why is, it, why is it so hard? Like I thought I had a handle on and you fill in the blank. I thought I had a handle on my anger, my pride, my lust, my greed, but yet it keeps resurfacing in my life and setting me back in devastating ways. And so Paul totally identifies with us in this chapter when he says, I really don't understand myself. Like the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, like this, I keep on doing. And last week, we sort of wrapped up by saying that there is a spiritual component to this, like a theological understanding. And then there is what we might call like a biological process. What I mean by that is that like when you come to Christ, like there is this theological understanding. Uh, and here it is. Uh, you are saved by grace, through faith, through the finished work of Jesus alone, period. It is not your work. You don't bring anything to it. It is all Jesus. And he transfers his righteousness into your account. Now, some of us are like, man, that just seems too good to be true. But it's true and it should be transformational. So when you respond to this free gift of salvation, what that means is you believe, you confess, you repent, you're baptized because that is a external picture of what's happening internally. Namely, your death, your death, burial, and resurrection, and this cleansing that takes place by what Jesus has done for you. Now, um, that is a position of confidence and security, meaning because it was Jesus who did that for you, you don't fall in and out of God's grace. You still sin, 
But God's grace outpaces your sin, not in a way that like says, hey, here's a blank check. Or the way I said last week was, here's a divine visa card. Just run up the sin balance as much as you want. God will pay it off in the end. Not, not to give us a license to sin, but to say, hey, I'm covered. So now I desire to grow. And that's the question of formation which is the mega theme of this whole series, is that uh, it's the realization that every single one of us, whether you believe in God right now or not, you are being formed into the image and likeness of something or someone. Namely, the people you hang around and the content you consume. You're just being formed into that image. And we wanna be formed more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus. And so we come to him on a continual basis. And the reason why personal growth is so challenging is the biological aspect of this is that um, we have a tendency to carve grooves in our brain that develop addictions and habits and rhythms. And it's called our neural pathways. And that will likely not change overnight. It's got to change through a series of decisions that we make. It's sort of like a chiropractor. You get out of alignment and you go to a chiropractor and they snap you back into place. And then you don't go, hey, I'm good. I never have to see one ever again. No, you, you actually go through life. You go through some more wear and tear. You have to go back again. And this is the process of what we might call like sanctification. We continue by way of the spirit to, to continue to come to God. The way the scriptures say it is keep in step with the spirit. And so that's gonna be a process that we continually come back to God on. So here's where I left off last week is that my character and your character is the collection of our choices. It's the collection of our choices. So God's grace outpaces our failures, but not to give us a blank check to keep on sinning, but that we strive now to bring all of our, and this is a key term, disordered desires under the Lordship of Christ, which is a process. And it's the understanding that God is not just concerned about getting me into heaven, but he's concerned about helping me become the kind of person who is ready for heaven. And that comes down to our character. Now, let me, let me uh, say this to kind of jump into chapter seven. The work of sanctification is preparing my character for citizenship in heaven. It is the question of formation. It is um, who or what is recalibrating my life. And we've simply said as followers of Jesus, we want to recalibrate our lives back to true north, which is the voice of Jesus Christ. And there is a lot of voices right now competing for his attention and affection in our lives. And so we just simply want to be open and say, I, I, I never, ever want to exchange the truth of God for a lie. So Spirit of God, am I doing that? Like, God, I want to aim my affections towards, not towards created things, but towards creator God, which is the definition of worship. And this is going to require potentially a rewiring of our brains, which is really, really important what we think about and really, really important what we expose ourselves to. Right? So I say all that by way of introduction. Now, as we jump into chapter seven, I just want to say this to you. Uh, I have got like a ton of content and it's really, really dense. And so I hope you've had your coffee. All right, and so like, I hope you get your thinking caps on. Like first service, like I was up here kind of going, I don't know if you're getting this or not. Like I kind of felt like I was like cramming a steak down everybody's throat and they didn't have time to chew. And so I just want to acknowledge that right now. Like I'm going to move fast. Like, and I have to talk, some of you are like, you talk so fast. It's because if I don't, like I'll forget what I'm going to say, right? So it's like, I got to like keep talking fast. So that way, like I kind of, I'm processing it as I'm talking. And so I just want to acknowledge all this. You're going to probably have to go back and re-listen to this message like six times to begin to kind of get it because it is dense, but it's going to be a lot of cloud cover. Hopefully there'll be a ray of sunlight by the end of this. All right. So 
So Tim Keller kind of outlines this chapter in these ways, if you're taking notes. All right, um, verses 7 through 13 describe the battle that we cannot win. All right, verses 14 through 25 describes a battle we cannot lose. And the first six verses gives us an analogy to see the connection between these two battles. All right, so uh, we'll start off. Verse 1, he says, Now, dear brothers and sisters, you who are familiar with the law, don't you know that the law applies only while a person is living? So for example, when a woman marries, the law binds her to her husband as long as he is alive. But if he dies, the laws of marriage no longer apply to her. So while her husband is alive, she would be committing adultery if she married another man. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law and does not commit adultery when she remarries. Now, this all sounds like very, very confusing, given the fact that where he was at in chapter 6 and now where he's going in chapter 7, you kind of leave you scratching your head going, Paul, why are you talking about marriage here? This doesn't seem to make any sense. And what I want you to know is he's using an analogy, just like he did in chapter 6. Remember the analogy in chapter 6? The analogy that he used was slavery. He said that is an analogy to help us understand our connection and our relation to sin. Now he's using the analogy of marriage to show us our connection to the law. And we'll explain law here in a minute. So verse four, he goes, so my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point of the analogy. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. And now you are united Remember that term from last week? It's a horticultural term. We're connected to the vine the branch, as a branch. We're united with the one, talking about Jesus, who was raised from the dead. In other words, before Jesus, all of us were married to the law. Now, what does that mean? Well, remember, there are a couple of specific applications to Paul's writing here. Remember who, uh, like in, in any uh, Bible interpretation, you have to always start with who wrote it and who did they originally write it to. You got to start there. And so we, we recognize that this is Paul writing, remember, to a very divided church in Rome. Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Why were they divided? Well, the Jewish Christians got kicked out of Rome. They were allowed to come back in five years later. And when they did, it was a very, very Gentile church, meaning the Gentiles weren't paying any attention to the Jewish customs and laws. And they were upset about it. And so they came in and they're like, hey, man, like, why aren't you guys observing the Sabbath? And why aren't you uh, observing the dietary restrictions? And why aren't you doing circumcision anymore? And they were trying to hold these things over the Gentile Christians. In other words, they were saying, yes, you're saved by grace through faith, through Jesus, and... All these other things, and we continue to do it today. So the broader application for, for the rest of us here is recognizing that the law, if you're taking notes, could also be shorthand for this. Whatever standard you assume proves your worth or gives you acceptance. And that's what we're all looking for. I want to know that I have worth, and I want to know that I'm accepted by God and by others. And so from a very early age, we develop a standard and we are all looking for that. And Paul says, hey, whatever those standards are, whether you realize it or not, like you were married to that. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means that you built your whole life around it. Kind of like when you 
literally get married to somebody else. You build your life around that other person. And he says it, sh- and he says, it was how you articulated your identity. It was how you reassured yourself that everything was going to be okay. And it formulated your worth. This is why... We often respond when somebody says, hey, uh, you know, tell me about yourself. We oftentimes respond with what we do for a living or uh, what our talents and abilities are. It's whatever kind of props up our sense of worth uh, or the standard by which we are accepted. And so go back to Paul's analogy in the first few verses. He says, the law is the husband, or you could interchange that with wife, to which you were at one time married. But he goes, a death has occurred. Like you died to the law, which meant that you also died to keeping the law as a basis of your acceptance, value, and worth. Like you died to all of that. And now you are united to Jesus by way of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. All right, so let's keep going. As a result, verse four, we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. Remember the fruits of the spirit. When we were controlled by our old nature, sinful desires were at work within us and the law aroused these evil desires that produced a harvest of sinful deeds resulting in death. But now we have been released from the law for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law by way of like justifying ourselves, but in the new way of living In the spirit. All right, so he says all that. And then check out what he says in verse seven. He goes, well, then, and hopefully by now in our study, you recognize that every time he says those two words, well, then, he's getting ready to answer his own rhetorical question. That he is anticipating the objections that maybe the Jewish Christians in Rome would have had and maybe even some of us. And here's the question. Am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Or we could say, am I suggesting that the law of God is bad or that is, it is irrelevant? Here's what some of the Jewish Christians would have been thinking as they read Paul's letter to them originally. They would have been like, man, you're awfully hard on the law, Paul. Like, it seems to me like you got a thing against the law. Like, what is wrong with the law, Paul? And it would kind of like be us today. Like, I would say that there's probably two very general groups of people listening to this. Those of us who love the rules and those of us who don't. Right? Like, it's like, uh, it, it's like some of us are like, man, like what is wrong with the rules? Like rules provide a standard. Rules are kind of like a warm security blanket. Like I love me some rules. And then others of us are like, rules are made to be broken. <laughs> or if you're kind of like me, it's like I'll follow the rules as long as they make sense. Right? But if they don't make sense, I'm going to break them. Right? And I'm married to somebody who never breaks the rules. Right? That's how that works. Right? So... So Paul goes, hey man, is, is the law bad? I mean, what's he talking about? He's talking about all 613 commands in the Old Testament. Like if you could follow all 613 to them, no need for Jesus, you'd be righteous. Nobody can do it. Take the 613, boil it down to the top 10, the 10 commandments. Nobody can even do that. He's like, so what is the purpose of the law? Is it bad? And then he answers his own question. Remember this from last week? Of course not. Strongest way of saying no in the Greek. It's my teenage daughter's going, a no, right? This is... This is what Paul's doing. And then he says this. He goes, in fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. And that is a great one-sentence description of the purpose of the law. In other words, the law's primary function is to show us 
how far short we all fall of God's standard of goodness. This is why, like, whenever you say, well, you know, good people go to heaven. Well, you just got to immediately say, well, by whose standard? Whose standard of goodness gets you in? How many acts of goodness get you in? Like, it's just this, uh, in fact, some of the worst leaders in history, many of them thought they were doing good. And the rest of us would go, nope, you were doing bad. So by what standard? And that's what the law does. The law says, hey, here's maybe your standard of goodness. Here's God's standard of goodness. And you can never get there. Here's what the law does. It defines and it reveals sin. That's what it does. It's kind of like, uh, like this, if I could use this um, illustration. I don't know how many of you have seen this. It's called the mirror. And it's like, I don't know how many of you have this like in your house. I, I've, never, I've not used it or anything like that, but I've heard about it. And so it's like, apparently like you look into a mirror as, and you exercise. All right, so, so let's just say that this is the law, right? Let's just say you have a full length mirror in your house and not only can you exercise with it, but the full length mirror takes these like measurements and knows like your ideal build muscle mass and weight in order for, according to your age and all that, like for you to be healthy. And every time you look into that mirror, there's an outline of what you should look like and an outline of what you are, all right? I don't know about you, I'm getting rid of that mirror. I ain't gonna look at that every day. That's the law. You look into the perfect law of God and this is the standard by which you should live. It's what God always wanted for you in a perfect world, but we don't live in a perfect world. We live in a fallen world that is messed up by sin. And we look into the law and we go, man, this just shows me that by God's standard of goodness, I will never live up. And so I think I'm pretty good but I'm actually really not. This is why I said this in the first couple of weeks of the series. Like if the good news of the gospel really doesn't sound all that good to you, it is likely because you really don't understand how bad the bad news really is. And now Paul's not talking at us because right then in the very next verse, he gives an example out of his own life. He says, hey, here's where I am in the message. Let me pull back the curtain. Let me put the spotlight on me. He says, I would have never known. That coveting is wrong. Coveting, that's the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet. I would never know that coveting is wrong if the law had said, you must not covet. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, he means that, that coveting, which by the way, has everything to do with internal motivations in your life. You can covet and nobody else will never ever know. So he goes, I would have never known that coveting was wrong had the law not told me. Because from a very early age, like that's just like what we do. How many of you have ever read a book on how to covet? Yeah, like how many of you have ever taken a class, Coveting 101? Like how many of you have ever had a mentor? Hey, let me teach you in the ways of coveting. Likely not, but how many of you covet? Please raise up your hands, liars, right? That's like, you just broke another command, right? So we've all coveted. What is coveting? Well, it's like secretly going, man, I wish I had what they had. I wish I had their kids. They seem so well behaved on Instagram. <laughs> like, I wish I had their car. I wish I had their looks. Like, I, I, I wish I had somebody else's platform. Right, that, that's coveting. And he says, I never would have known. That was a thing because my heart just naturally goes there. If the law had said, thou shalt not covet. And then he goes on in verse eight. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. In other words, like now that I'm aware of it, like I see it all the time. If there were no law, sin would not have that power. At one time, I lived without understanding the law. 
Now he's actually talking about his days before Christ. But when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life and I died. So I discovered that the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death instead. Why? Because I can never live up to it. Verse 11, sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me. It used the commands to kill me. But still, the law itself is holy and its commands are holy and right and good. But how can that be? Did the law which is good cause my death? Here it is once again. Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. So we can see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's good commands for its own evil purposes. And that is how we get hypocrisy and legalism. Whenever we use God's good commands for our own ends, to kind of prop ourselves up and to say, here's how good I really am in relation to other people. So what Paul is talking about here, and, and many of you may, may remember or recall his story. And if you don't, I'll just give you the Cliff Notes version. Before Paul was called Paul, his name was Saul. And before he was the author of much of our New Testament, he was a prominent Pharisee. And he thought he was pleasing God. He thought he was following after God, but he really wasn't. And he, his heart was largely unaware of just how far he had drifted from God. And he says, uh, I prided myself on knowing the law better than anyone else and following the law better than anyone else. And he goes, but it broke down when it came to the law of coveting. Why? Because all the other, let's just take the Ten Commandments. All those have to do with external um, behaviors. Coveting has to do with internal motivations, which will nail us every time. So here's how it looked for Paul. Paul went down through the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery. He's like, I haven't done that. I don't steal. I don't kill. I keep the Sabbath. I tithe every dollar. Check, 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 check. But then he comes down to the Ten Commandment, then it messes everything else up. Because that one deals with internal motivations of the heart, revealing in a really, really sick twist that he'd been following all of the Ten Commandments for selfish reasons. In fact, like being super religious was actually fueled by his covetous heart. He wanted the respect and the admiration and the affection of others more than he wanted the approval of God. And he said, the harder I tried to keep the law and prove that I was a good person, the more my coveting flared up and I was aware of it because I, it was all fueled by my insecurity. In fact, in Acts chapter 26, Paul is recounting his conversion story. Some of you might remember it. His, he's, his name is Saul. He's on the road to Damascus. God comes to him in a bright, blinding light. He falls over and, and, he, and over a series of days, like he, like he comes to recognize how far he drifted and he gives his life to God. And in Acts 26, as Paul is kind of unpacking this for us, he says something really, really peculiar. He says that uh, God cried out to him by way of the Spirit on that day on the road to Damascus, these words, Saul, Saul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I've never really fully understood that. And this is what he's talking about. He's like, a goad was a long stick with a pointed end, and it was used to guide livestock, sort of like a cattle prod. And uh, obviously, uh, they didn't like it. And so they would kick against it. But when they did, it was to no avail and it only injured themselves. And this is what Jesus says to Paul. So what's he talking about? He says, well, one of the goads, so to speak, was Paul, this conviction that you keep kicking up against the conviction of the 10th commandment. 
and your complete inability to justify yourself? Would you stop trying to justify yourself and hold it over others? And would you just come to me? Because this is a battle you will never, ever, ever win. Now, in the remainder of the chapter, he's going to talk about the battle we cannot lose. Look at verse 14. So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and it's good. The trouble is with me, for I'm all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. That's called that conviction. Verse 17, so I'm not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And right here, all of us should be able to resonate, resonate with what he's saying because he is describing this internal battle, this struggle that goes on inside of all of us. The, the old man or woman and the new man or woman, the, the bad part of us and the good part of us, the, the shadow side of us, the, the flesh and the soul. I said this last week, you're not just all body, you're not just all soul. You are a soul within a body, which means that you are still prone to disordered desires. And there's a battle going on. This kind of reminds me of that uh, book by Robert Louis Stevenson entitled Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Remember reading that book in school? And uh, Dr. Jekyll is a really good citizen. And he's really discouraged, though, because he notices, like, deep down inside, there's, like, this shadow side of him that kind of keeps seeping out into the good part of him, kind of sabotaging, like, all of his good intentions. And he says this. He goes, I am an incongruous compound of both good and bad mixed together. And so he decides to do something about it. And Dr. Jekyll, being a chemist, he develops a potion that separates the two. So only the good part comes out by day, Dr. Jekyll, and the bad part comes out by night, Mr. Hyde, whose name originates, by the way, from the word hidden or hideous. And he says now they can exist without restraining each other or poisoning each other. The problem was, as many of you know who read the book, is that the evil part of him was far more evil than he ever thought. He's like, whoa, this isn't just like a guy that's just a little mischievous. Like Mr. Hyde is selfish, spiteful, angry, hateful, and even killed people. He goes, I was 10 times more wicked than I imagined. Stevenson, speaking through Dr. Jekyll, says this. I discovered through this process that man is not truly one but two. It wasn't that I was a hypocrite because both sides of me were completely sincere. Stevenson, by the way, was a believer, which makes me wonder if Romans 7 inspired the writing of that story. Now watch how Paul turns up the dial big time before kind of bringing this to a resolution in verse 18. He goes, and I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. You hear what he's saying? He's not saying that there isn't anything like good within you. you you've been made in the image of God. There's goodness in you because of that alone. But he goes, in my sinful nature, nothing good. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I think it's important to point out that Paul is explaining here the spiritual reality of this fight that we are all in, and he is not making excuses for bad behavior. Like this is not the lame line, well, you know, Satan made me do it. Satan can't make you do anything. Satan will not force himself on you and force your actions any more than the Spirit of God can force your actions. He'll tempt you, 
He'll throw some stuff in your path and then you've got to make a decision. That's why we said this last week. There's a difference between temptation and sin. There have been some moments in my life as I've kind of journeyed through this and wrestled with faith and wondered if, you know, God was real and if the Bible could be trusted. There have been moments in my life when I experienced such like temptation and allure away from the spirit of God by Satan that it reaffirmed my belief in a good God. In irony, it was actually the intensity of Satan's temptations that reinforced my belief in God, if that makes sense. And there's just this kind of like sinister nature within all of us where we have to check our motives. And here's why. You can do the right things for wrong reasons. I was talking to a friend of mine a few months ago and she just confessed to me um, that God was like exposing some pride in her life. And it really surprised me because I've never once in all my interactions with her ever, ever thought that she was prideful. Like I've never had that thought. And so I told her that. And I said, I've never ever thought of you as prideful. And here's what she said. It rocked me back on my heels. She said, well, Aaron, that's how sinister pride can be. Because I can actually pretend to not be prideful. And it's actually pride that's causing me to do that. It's this idea of like, I, wanna, I want others to, to notice me. I want others to, to think well of me. I, I want to kind of work my way up or whatever. And so I'm going to serve. I'm going to come across as having just a servant's heart. But it's not because I really want to make a difference in the lives of people. And it's not because I'm trying to be obedient to God. But honestly, it's because I want other people to think rightly of me. That's pride. And that's how sinister our hearts can be. And there is this internal war that is going on in all of us. Look what he says in verse 21. I have discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. That should be my life verse. (laughs) Verse 22. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Paul says it so clearly here as he says, there is a war going on in my mind and I can't help but notice what is going on all around us, that there is a plague right now just sweeping through our society of mental health. Just anxiety and depression and suicide, like all through the roof. And then we come to a passage like this that says there's a war in our minds. And I'm not trying to over-spiritualize this. I'm I'm not necessarily talking about demon possession, although I'm not necessarily ruling it out either. What I am saying is that the real battle exists in our heads. And so if you want to kind of get through this, you've got to recognize like your thought life is so important. Like we've just underestimated that. Like we're just like, well, it's not that big of a deal. I'm just thinking it. No, it's a huge deal because that's where behavior, that's where rhythms, that's where habits come from. So if your thoughts are so important, then you got to say, well, my thoughts don't just appear out of thin air. Your thoughts are a product of the things you consume. The material you read, the things that you watch, the people that you interact with. And we are either helping in this like by, by placing ourselves in a position of watching what we consume or we are our own worst enemy. Uh, one of the earliest dreams that I ever had, and I've never forgotten it. I don't remember how old I was, um, but I was a little kid. And I, I have a tendency to remember most of my dreams. And I remember like um, having this dream where the first house that we uh, lived in was a house that was kind of in the woods and it had a long a gravel driveway that kind of went through um, some thick woods. And I had this dream that it was after dark. 
I'm walking down this gravel driveway, but the thing is, is that I was actually behind me. Like I was walking behind me and I had like a flashlight or a spotlight. So I was like walking behind me and it was really weird. Like I was like creeping up on myself. Like I was getting ready to attack myself. And like right when I got up behind me, me turned around to look at me and I had this like terrified look on my face as I attacked myself and I woke up. Like that was terrifying. And I remember right there, I was like, what in the world is that all about? And it was as if I just had this impression from a very, very early age. It was as if this, it was like, Aaron, you are your own worst enemy. That you, you, like you are just one or two decisions away from just completely sabotaging your life. There is this battle that is going on within you. This is what Paul is talking about, this war in our minds, which means don't give the enemy any sort of a foothold. So let me finish up the passage. And then I'm going to make a couple of words of application and I'm going to finish up on time. All right, so <laughs> maybe verse 25. Thank God. Oh man, that's so great. Thank God. Can you just sense the release in this? The answer is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law. But because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. It's the battle that I can't win, but Jesus gives me the battle that I can't lose. So let me give you two primary takeaways before we wrap up. Here's the first thing, if you're taking notes. Following after Jesus means that you're going to face an ongoing war in your mind. It's just like never going away. And it's actually an opportunity to be formed more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus, to reform the grooves in your brain, the neuropathways, to look more and more like Jesus. This right here is a reoccurring theme all through the New Testament. Galatians chapter 5, the desires of the flesh and the promptings of the spirit oppose each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Colossians 3 urges us, hey man, put off the old self with its practices, put on the new. Ephesians 6, put on the full armor of God. It's the understanding that when you give your life to Christ, the old self doesn't go away. The old self doesn't even lose any strength. They are still there. They're just not in the driver's seat anymore. This is what lordship means. And I'm not going to move over one inch. Otherwise they'll push me out and grab the wheel and run my life into a ditch. Guard your mind. And so you uh, read the Bible and you listen to worship music and all that, not because that's just what good Christians do, not just because, you know, God's like pleased when you do that, but because you are filling your mind with things because you know that that's where the battle is lost or won. So can I just get like really, really practical right now? The, the, uh, the real church right now in America is our screens. So like it's almost like, it almost feels like I am like spitting into the wind, like when it comes to any sort of a difference I can make, because I know there are multiple hours right now that you are spending on your screens, taking in all kinds of content that is running in direct counter to what God's word says. And then you get me, like if you're like, like, like they say that like you're committed if you're here once a month. So 35, 40, sometimes 45 minute message, all right in comparison to multiple hours on a screen, like that's your church. You are being discipled by the talking commentary heads on whatever news media you look at. I am just an addendum. And I recognize that. And so here's the thing is that you're gonna have to, you're gonna, this is, the ball is in your court where you've got to ask yourself, what is coming into my mind on a regular basis? 
And here's, here's the test. Whatever you're filling your mind with, if it is not leading you to fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, faith, self-control, if it is leading to fear, anxiety, and anger, you need to stop eating it. This is the thing where... So I was in... Uh, I was in New York City this past week for one night. I had a board meeting on Tuesday. And so uh, I get up really early in my hotel room and I'm just doing some stretching. And I turn on the TV just to have some, some noise on in the room. Shouldn't have done that. Because what was on TV was like, um, uh, it, was one of, it, was, uh, it was not a news channel, but it was like one of those like bright, cheery morning talk shows, which is like, that's like so fake because it's not, right? So, so it's like one of those talk shows. I wasn't really fully listening to it. It was just kind of on in the background. But they were like talking about like the storms in the east and the west. And they were talking about the virus. And they were talking about politics. And they were talking about all these issues and problems. And then, and then the commercial breaks were like all about politics. And people just kind of smearing each other and all that. And after about 30, 45 minutes, like I started to feel anxious. And I started to feel gross. And I was like, what is wrong with me today? And I was like, oh, I'm eating that. It's like, it's like whenever you eat junk food, how do you feel? Like you feel gross afterwards. And it's the same thing with content. And so can I just say this? If the battle is fought and won in your mind, you need to ask yourself, if on a consistent basis you're feeling angry, feel fearful, um, or anxious, then you need to stop consuming some of the things you're consuming. Some of you have the news on, whether it's CNN or Fox News, whatever, you, whatever church you go to, <laughs> on all day long. Why? You're like, well, I want to keep touch with what's going on in the world. You can get that a different way. Read the headlines five minutes a day. You don't need to have it on all the time because that's discipling you. That's creating like this sense of direction in your life. All right, so we got we to watch what we watch. All right, so here's the second word of application. Recognizing the victory that Jesus won changes the way we see the fight. And so we're just under this recognition that, man, I am a wretched man. I'm a wretched woman. Like there isn't anything I can do to justify myself before God and others. Jesus has won that victory for me. But now I have this freedom to begin to pursue Jesus in every area of my life, to be formed more and more into his image because I've been set free by grace. Therefore, therefore, grace should be exuding out of my life. I had a mentor say this to me when I was in college. He goes, man, if you're saved by grace, that ought to make you gracious. And if you ain't gracious, you've probably not been saved by grace. You're trying to justify yourself by the law, which means you're going to, like, there should be no such thing as a mean Christian. Imperfect, yes, but mean, no, because you realize what you've been set free from. It's kind of like this. The great preacher, Tony Evans, described it kind of this way. He goes, man, uh, when you're talking about um, canines, talking about dogs. He goes, man, you can tell the difference between a grace dog and a law dog. Like a uh, uh, a law dog has its tail tucked between its legs. It cowers when the master comes into the room. It's unsure how to please the master, unsure where it stands. Like law dog, grace dog. Oh man, everybody loves to be around a grace dog. Like tails wagging, like they jump up on you, they're licking you, they wanna please the master. They're just happy to be around you because you know they, there's a relationship that, that is there, right? Now, unfortunately, there is no correlation with cats, right? This analogy <laughs> totally breaks down. We love you cat people. You are welcome here. Just do not email me. All right, so, <laughs> so raced all of that. So he says all that to say this. Hey, God wants grace people, not law people. God wants the fact that you have a relationship with him and therefore that exudes into the lives of other people. And God sent Jesus so that you might have that. 
I wanna wrap up with this. Uh, some of you might recognize the name Adoniram Judson. He was a prolific missionary. Born in the late 1700s, even though he grew up in a Christian home, he actually rebelled against God, became a deist and um, a skeptic of Christianity. But as a young man, he had a genuine conversion, gave his life to Christ and went to seminary. And there he uh, had a group of missions-minded friends uh, that really influenced him. And he became convinced that Asia was the place he needed to move because that was a place of greatest need in the world for the gospel message at the time. And so he and his wife set out for India, but due to political reasons, they got forced out. From there, they went to Burma. And that's where he served out the remainder of his days. And he set the goal of translating the Bible into Burmese. That's an amazing accomplishment. It's like for many of us, we've not even read the Bible all the way through. He wanted to translate the whole thing into a different language. And that's when life got really difficult. And he went through all kinds of uh, experiences of suffering and hardship and what seemed like um, little fruit for all of his effort. After 12 years of serving there, they had only led 18 people to Christ. He spent 17 months in prison. His first wife died of disease, as did their third child. He remarried to an American missionary. She also died of disease. At the age of 61, he developed an illness that forced him to head back to the United States. But while he was on the ship, he died. It just seems like just one setback after another. However, after nearly 40 years of ministry, listen to this, he left behind a fully translated Burmese Bible, planted over 100 churches, and had led over 8,000 people to Jesus. His son, Edward Judson, was born in Burma, but moved back to the United States, became a pastor of Berean Church in Manhattan near Washington Square Park, later renamed to Judson Memorial Church. And here's what his son said. Success and suffering are vitally and organically linked. If you succeed without suffering, it is because someone suffered for you. If you suffer without succeeding, it is in order that someone else may succeed after you. Now, there are all kinds of principles that we can glean from that quote that apply to life and parenting and leadership. But I read it to you today to make this application that Jesus suffered for you so that you might have success over the old you. That you might have success over that Mr. or Mrs. Hyde within you that just keeps sabotaging your life so that you may no longer be subjected right now to earning your approval, status, or position because that inevitably leads to crushing despair or incredible pride. But you can find freedom and rest in Christ. And so today, here's just the very simple application. Ask God to fill your mind with thoughts that lead you to be more like Jesus. And that may mean that you need to take some steps, getting away from a screen. Some of you maybe, you need to say, you know what? For a day, for a week, for a month, I'm just not gonna watch the news. I'll get, I'll get the major headlines, just the stuff that I need to just kind of be aware of what's going on in the world so I can pray and know how to live my life. But I'm not just gonna have like, like that. I'm, not, I'm gonna stop scrolling and just kind of comparing myself to other people. Like, what are you filling your mind with? And it's this place right here today where you say, God, I want to allow you to fill my thoughts 
because I don't, wanna, I don't wanna be this person anymore. I wanna prepare my character for citizenship in heaven. And I wanna be an ambassador of heaven right here in this dark world to make a difference for all of eternity. That is the battle. You can never win when you try to do it in your own strength, but it's the battle that Jesus fought already for you. Let's pray together. Father, in these remaining moments that we had together, I pray that your spirit would feel at home in this room, you would work on each one of us, that you would help us to see the application that we need to make for our specific life today. The battle is won or lost in the mind. So God, we want to declare right now today that we not only give you our hearts, but we wanna give you our minds. And we pray that we would fill our minds with things that inevitably lead to living more like you because you have died to give us success over that internal battle that we all continue to face. So God, meet us in this moment, encourage us, convict us, motivate us so that we might follow after you in every area of life. And we ask this right now in Jesus' name. And everybody says,